You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. We have my new friend, Alexander Hitchens, with us on the show. Alexander is a kid from Cleveland who is finding his way in Los Angeles. He's creating music that travels way beyond LA. In fact, I can almost guarantee if you watch anything that has to do with sports, you have heard Alexander's music on TV. In fact, his tag on Insta is you probably heard me on TV because you probably did. So we'll get into that today. We're going to talk about the music that he's helping to create, his story of how he got there. But we're also going to explore just really the business of art and how do you turn that passion and that talent and actually turn it into something where you can make a living. So I'm really excited to talk about that. But I can't launch into this episode without giving my personal intersection of how I got to know Alexander really comes because one of my kids was going through a rough patch in his life. And one of the best things that helped pull him out of that was finding some music. And it just so happened some of the music that he latched onto was some of the music that Alexander had helped to create. So the moment I met this guy, I was deeply endeared to him, deeply grateful for what he's done for my family and just created an awesome chance for us to get connected very, very quickly. And so we'll talk. I don't want to give a spoiler and tell you some of the music this guy has done. That's going to come out as we go, but we'll definitely talk about that as well. Because again, you as a listener have probably heard some of his stuff. You just didn't know it was his stuff. So Alexander, thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm just so honored to have you. Thanks for having me, Tommy. No, this is amazing. We talked about it when we first met, how we would love to get together and continue this conversation. And I'm glad we actually do it. So thank you for having me on here. It's an honor. Absolutely. Well, Alex, our listeners love hearing people's stories. And in your case, I want to start back at the point where you first got exposed to the violin, because that kind of kicks off this entire musical legacy, but not in maybe a traditional way people would think about. So bring us in at that moment that you first get interested in the violin. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a hotly contested story (laughs) between me and my mom. So the legend has it that I was watching Sesame Street. I was four years old and I saw a violin on one of the bits on Sesame Street. And my mom says that I told her that I wanted to play it. I was so fascinated by the sound of it, just the person playing it. And I was like, I want to do that. And so my mom told me, she told me at that time when I was four years old, that if she got me this violin, she would not let me quit. So she's negotiating with a child. (laughs) That never goes well. (laughs) But growing up, you know, I always thought that she made me play it, but she refutes it. She says that I chose to play it. And it was something that at that time, you know, through my childhood felt extremely difficult, challenging, something that I didn't want to do. But now that I look back, it is probably the most important thing in just even what I do today. You know, starting at that early age, getting the violin, getting private lessons, playing in the youth orchestra in Cleveland, playing in my high school orchestra, despite countless times of trying to quit. I tried to quit 
all different types of ways. I tried to hide my violin at the library at school. I would come home with an instrument for band and say, I'm joining the band because all my friends are in the band. But my mom was like, no, you're going to orchestra class. She would take me up to the school. She would make me find the violin, walk me into orchestra and said, my son is in orchestra. Please do not let him leave. So yeah, it was difficult. You know, I think I had a lot of trouble with it because there weren't a lot of kids that looked like me playing the violin. You know, I was a young African-American kid. All my friends were like playing drums or they were in church playing organ keys and stuff. And I was a kid, like I was a bigger kid too. So you think about the violin, it's a really petite, gentle instrument. And you have this kind of burly round kid playing this wooden instrument. I always attribute my mom and her consistency and not letting me quit as the biggest reason why I'm able to do what I do today. And Alex, you actually shared a story with me. There was a time when you did not want to go play in public, but your mother forced you out. I mean, this is one of my favorite stories. Yeah, absolutely. So I lived in Chicago. So I grew up in Cleveland, but before I moved to Cleveland, we lived in Chicago for like three or four years. And um, my mom, one day, she took me downtown Chicago. You know, I've been playing the violin for a few years now. I was not as good as I probably should be to be playing out in public. But what we did, she took me down to downtown Chicago. My dad's working at Cannon at the John Hancock building. So we're nearby. And my mom's like, you know what? Pop your violin case open. We're going to stand on the corner here and I want you to play. <laughs> and I was just terrified. I was like, no way you're going to make me play my violin on this busy downtown intersection corner. But sure enough, you know, I couldn't say no. I pull it out. I start playing some Suzuki or whatever I was learning at the time. And at that point, it was like, you know, people coming by and they see a kid playing a violin, a young black kid. And they're like, oh, I'll give him a dollar, give him a dollar here. But that was, you know, looking back now, that was actually the first time I actually made money off of music. <laughs> so my mom might have been on something. <laughs> That's the start. That's the start of the entrepreneurial journey for you. So it's great. And it seems like looking back, you're grateful that your mother forced you to stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. More than just the the idea of all, you need to play the violin, I'm forcing you to play the violin. I think what's more of her desire to see me just have resolve, have discipline, and to not worry about the short game. You know, the short game for me as a kid was like, I want to do what all my friends are doing. They're in band, they're doing this. But she's like, look, you've already been playing this instrument for three or four years now. And she saw the progress that I wasn't able to see. She saw the investment starting to bear fruit. So she was like, no, we're going to stick with this. And she was right, you know, as a 37 year old man now living in L.A. doing music for a living, she was 100 percent right. Well, that's a perfect segue. So how did we go from playing in Chicago for a few dollars to actually this being your career? How did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So, as I said, I played the violin. I had private teachers had played in Cleveland Youth Orchestra. I played in my high school orchestra. And all of those things impacted just my ability to hear music, to read music, to be able to create music. You know, when you're playing an orchestra, I only played one instrument, but I was amongst a bunch of other instruments. So I always knew what the violas were doing. I knew what the cellos were doing. I knew what the bass was doing. And so even as my brain starting to kind of like, you know, I'm getting older and I'm starting to process things and like, all right, why do things work together? You know, it's just formative growth. I think playing in orchestras and seeing the moving parts work together really started me on a journey of wanting to get into music production, which is like, how do I get all these different sounds to work together for a track, you know, to produce an album, to do all these things. And so there's two things going on. There's the actual creation and the art part of me forming, but then there's also 
the discipline part that's forming. So as I talked about, I had a teacher. I had several private teachers, probably five or six. I only remember one teacher's name. His name was Mr. Snader. Now, Mr. Snader played in the Cleveland Orchestra. It's a very prestigious orchestra in Cleveland. They travel all around the world. Mr. Snader was a World War II veteran as well. (laughs) Old, old Jewish guy. And he was a hard you-know-what. I mean, my dad would drop me at these lessons and I would cry because I'm like, don't leave me here with this old man. He's so scared. He's just like an old cripply man, but he was a master of the violin. But what was interesting about my lessons with Mr. Snader, and this is probably the only reason I remember him as far as teachers that I've had, is because Mr. Snader didn't care about the music. And that was so different from all my other experiences. Mr. Snader cared about the details, making sure that my posture was right, making sure my wrist was right, making sure my pinky was right. And so now that I'm older, I realized that it doesn't matter what project you have, what goals you have for the year. If you don't make sure you have those little details right, none of the big things matter. So I tip my hat to Mr. Snader drilling at home, even when I didn't want to hear it, even when I was terrified, he was so consistent with that. And so those things helped me grow as a creative, but also when I started strategizing, how can I actually monetize what I do? How can I turn this into a business? You know, and so when I go through college, I'm setting up a studio in my dorm room. I got microphones there. I'm I'm bringing people in. I'm recording. And when you're a producer in a room, you're essentially kind of managing a room. It's like being a baseball manager. You got to manage all the personalities. You got to manage the goals. You got to manage the small execution, the big things. And so, you know, you see the parallels of like those things that I experienced as a kid learning. Now it's playing out, you know, as I create music. And so I did that all through college and. And a lot of that was just relationship building and putting in my 10,000 hours and coming out of college. It's like, all right, how do I how do I get this music out here? You know, it's such a long process, but I'm a big believer in making peace with the process. You know, you have to like lay brick by brick, piece by piece, relationship by relationship until one day that door knocks. And that's the one that you get to run through and start to monetize. I love that. I love that, Alexander. It's one of the things that I try to tell our teams that are out there in sales or distribution is you can't control when someone's ready to say yes. What you can control is that you're in the neighborhood when they're ready to say yes. And it sounds like that's very similar to the approach you took is get out there and do it piece by piece and be in the neighborhood. And so where did your kind of first big break actually come? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Andy Mineo, one of my favorite, you know, rappers, Christian dude. I've had a privilege to work with him. He has this line in one of his songs that says, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Right. And so <laughs> and before I met Andy, that was my mantra. So I would make tons of music. I would make beats. I would create productions and no one was really checking for it. But I created libraries and libraries of songs and just ideas. So this is back I'm going to date myself here. This was MySpace era. So MySpace era is just after I get out of college. Maybe it's just before Facebook takes off. So MySpace was a place where you can put your music online. You can connect with other creatives. So I would upload my music, my beats that I create. I didn't have any rappers. Nobody was on my music. But I put these beats online and I would hit up these different artists. So I would hit Lecrae up. I would hit Tadashi up. I would hit Show Baraka. So these guys were part of this group called 116. Now this is probably 15 years ago. And listeners, just so you're aware, the names that Alexander has just rattled off today, these are like the preeminent Christian rap artists. So very, very big in that 
landscape of people that want to listen to Christian rap or R&B, hip hop. These are the people that Alexander's talking about. So keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is 15 years ago. So Lecrae that we know today is selling out arenas. He's going on world tours. When I was trying to reach out and connect with them, this guy was pulling up to concerts in a minivan. So he was still very, very the infancy of Christian hip hop as what we know it today. But I would send them messages and none of these guys responded, you know, but I was like, oh, I know my music is good enough and it's different and I can make an impact. Only guy that responded was this rapper named Thizzle. Thizzle was in St. Louis. Now he's part of the whole camp. He's friends with Lecrae. He's friends with Tadashi. Thizzle responded to a message that I sent him. In my message, I told him, hey, I have four tracks on my page. And I think one of these tracks would fit really well with your style because I had paid attention to kind of what he does. Well, he doesn't read the message. He just goes straight to my page. Now, my songs are on shuffle just to kind of put this all in perspective. So there's no telling what song is going to play first. The song that I had mentioned in the message actually played first and he heard it and he was like, this is something I need. I need this for my album. So he sends me a message and he's like, hey, man, what's your story? What's your deal? Whatever. I was like, hey, man, I'm a kid out of Cleveland. I love Christian hip hop. I think I could be an asset to what you guys are doing. And Fizzle was not interested in the music immediately. And that kind of threw me off. He was like, hey, man, so tell me your story. Like, you know, how did you come to the faith? And just tell me, you know, what your life is like in Cleveland. And for me, that was so different than how I imagined industry or professional music, you know, relationships start. Now, he was actually interested in me as a person. And that really kind of shifted my paradigm. And so what he ended up doing, he flew me to St. Louis, went out there, hung out with him for a week. We just did life. I met his family. I met his wife. I saw the way that he was able to do his craft, but not allow his craft to be his primary ministry, right? His primary ministry was being a dad, being a husband, you know, taking care of his neighborhood. The music was just a vehicle for that. It was so important for me to experience that early on in my career because I was able to create a proper context for what I do and why I do what I do. And so I do about 80% of his album that comes out later that year. I get back to Cleveland. I get a call. Lecrae calls me. He's like, hey, man, I heard your music from Thizzle. I love what you're doing. You know, you got any music you can send me? Lecrae was not Lecrae as we know him today, but it was still a big deal to get a call from Lecrae. And I was like, oh, dude, I'd love to do it. So we ended up connecting. I sent him music. I ended up working with pretty much the entire Reach Records team for the next seven or eight years. And that was that was like my first big break, so to speak, you know, uh, but it was all relationships, you know. And so anybody that works in business, whether it's entertainment or any other sector, highly, highly relational driven. And I love that you reached out. So you actually reached out to these people. A lot of people, what I've seen, at least Alexander, is maybe they're wicked talented at something, but for whatever reason, they won't reach out. It's like they're waiting for the world to come find them. And I always want to encourage them, no, take that leap, you know, try to make that connection. And yes, you know what? Maybe 99 or maybe 999 times out of a thousand, nobody responds. All it takes is that one response from Thizzle and then you're off to the races. And Alexander, just for our listeners' benefit, when you're talking about doing music for them, like, are you writing the lyrics or are you providing like the actual music that's underneath the lyrics? Like, how far do you get involved in the process? Absolutely. Yeah. Just to your point, I agree 100%. I play golf. And one of the things that I say is 100% of the putts left short don't go in. So 
If you never ask, it's always going to be no. You got to put yourself out there. As far as like the actual function of what I do as a music producer, primarily music driven. So my job is to take the drums, take the pianos, the keys, the strings, create something that is rappable, you know, or someone that can sing on, you know. And I had to learn this, you know, because when I first started making a lot of tracks, I would try to put everything in the track. I would load it up with all these different sounds. And it was like, there's nowhere for the artist to land. You know, there's no room for lyrics. There's no room for vocals. So I've had to learn how to do more with less, you know, and that's probably the biggest piece of advice I give producers. Like, how do you do more with less? How do you make something really simple? You know, Steve Jobs said it's really hard to make something really simple. And the people who have mastered professional music production have figured out a way to walk that line, know what to pull out, what to leave in, you know? So yeah, so I create the tracks. I would send it to Lecrae. I would send it to Triple E. I would send it to Andy. And then they would write on it, whether I'm on a tour bus or they're sitting in the studio, they'd write on it. They send me back the idea. And now my job as a producer is to produce it out. It's to say, all right, how do we take this idea and make it into a maybe a more full idea, more full concept. So it's a lot of collaboration, a lot of back and forth, a lot of passing, catching, passing again. But I love it because, it's again, it goes back to being a relational exercise, so to speak, you know? So as you were initially describing it, what I was thinking in my head is, oh, I finally know which came first, the chicken or the egg, as it relates to music. <laughs> I was like, oh, the music comes first and then they layer the words on it. But then you threw me for a loop. You send them the track, then they put stuff with it and they're also coming back. Hey, maybe we need to adjust this and this. So it's it's almost like the music comes, then the words come, then the music morphs. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's definitely a it's a dance. You know, it's like you're dancing. You don't want to step on each other's toes, but you got to create a rhythm and you got to create a movement. And I will say there are some instances, these are rare exceptions where maybe an artist will send me an idea, say, hey, I want to talk about my wife. And this is maybe the chorus idea. And, you know, they'll send me like a voice note where they're, you know, they're maybe chanting or rapping or singing it. And then what I do is take that and it's like, all right, how do I make this into a song? But most of the time, you know, especially when it comes to rap, you know, producers are sending out the tracks to the rapper. They'll lay something down and then Lecrae or whoever will send it back to me. And my job is to try to get to the finish line. But yeah, it's definitely uh, six, one half dozens, different ways to cut it up. You know, Alex, it's fascinating. And one of the things I wondered, we've never done this before, but I mean, this is a podcast. We have audio. Could we get a clip of that original audio that you sent over to Thistle for him to listen to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then little backstory. So the track that I sent him, it's a darker track. And when you think about Christian hip hop at the time, it was very like reform style. It was like, you know, rapping Bible verses. The unique thing about Thistle is that he was a guy, he came out of the streets. So he used to be a former drug dealer. He was a hustler. He's been in jail. And so Jesus completely just wrapped his arms around him and pulled him out of that environment. Well, while he was out of the environment as far as a lifestyle, he was still proximate enough that he wanted to speak into it. And so this track that he picked from me, he decided to talk about, the song was called, I Hate You. And people were like, well, I hate you. What do you hate? Well, he talks about how he hates crack because crack was destroying his neighborhood, cocaine. And so he talks about on this track, the impact that that drug has had on his family members, on his community and his life. And so 
I had an opportunity to partner with him on that by providing this track to him. And it was so different. <laughs> that actually, Lecrae and the guys didn't even want him to put it out because it was that radically different from everything else they were talking about. They're like, I don't know if people are ready for this. But it wasn't until that Lecrae and those guys were on tour. And Bizzle actually told me the story. He was on tour with Lecrae. And Lecrae went to his neighborhood and played the song before it came out. And he saw the response from people he grew up with. He was like, oh, people need to hear this. So even though it's different, it's still you know a biblical perspective on the world and the impact of these things in our community. We need to put this out. And so, yeah, the song is called I Hate You by Thizzle. Very first song I ever got placed, ever worked on with this guy. And it completely you know changed my life. So listeners, here's a clip of that song that he put out for Thistle. Yeah, you brought the money, but with it came the pain. Yeah, you made it sunny, but then it brought the rain. I came to set them free, man, I'm through with making slaves. And I don't care how many other rappers sing you praise. You take so much from me and I can never get it back. Lord knows I hate the day I ever sold crack cocaine. I hate you. Lord knows I hate you. These rappers talk about the money, they talk about the fame, but they don't talk about the pain that comes with selling cane. Crack, I hate you. Cocaine, I hate you. How could you take a little girl and crush her whole dream? So listeners, I hope you enjoyed that track. It's just going to continue to get better and better from here. So I didn't tell you this in the introduction, but Alexander is a Grammy award-winning artist, a Dove award-winning artist. And that actually comes back in his story with some of these Christian rappers. But he also expands his repertoire as he goes. And so Alexander, I want to have you take us into, you actually moved into spoken word and then that kind of parlayed into sports. And so tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I was fortunate enough to work with Lecrae and those guys for several years. So I was on Lecrae's Gravity album. We did a song called No Regrets. It ended up being part of his Grammy Award winning album. Had a chance to work with Andy Minio. We did a song called Death of Me, which ended up winning a double award. And so I was fortunate enough to start creating some momentum, start building a resume that I was able to kind of start leaning into other different types of genres. Now, as a kid, I grew up playing the violin. I grew up playing orchestra. So I always had a love for cinematic music, for orchestral music. And there were opportunities for me to do that as a support for spoken word artists. So I ended up meeting this guy named Jefferson Bethke, who's a author, he's a spoken word artist, he's a speaker, good friend of mine. And so Jefferson hits me up because he's a big fan of Lecrae and all those guys. So, you know, the circle's small, but it's big. And he's like, hey man, would you be interested in doing some background music for some of my spoken word pieces? And so I ended up working on probably four or five, maybe even six different pieces for Jefferson, where I'm just creating these cinematic landscapes. You know, I'm not confined to verse, hook. It's like, hey, we're just going to go on this river of a journey and creating this music. And I'm so thankful that he gave me the opportunity to do that because it allowed me to expand my repertoire, which also allowed me to be able to point to that as something that's different than the rap, different than hip hop, but also a sound that transitions really well for TV and film. And so I was able to leverage that into different opportunities, even outside of the Christian sphere. Yeah. So Alexander, I've got to ask again, can we get a clip so we can show our listeners like this is what you're talking about as it relates to this cinematic type of music? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of my favorite pieces that I worked on with Jefferson was The Greatest Artist of All Time, where he talks about God being the greatest artist of all time and that our creativity is an outflow, an overpouring of his creativity. And so, yeah, this is me and Jefferson Bethke, greatest artist of all time. And see, this artist, he's a beast, a lion, the name above names. You don't even realize it, but you encounter his art every day. And he deserves all of the acclaim. He deserves all of the fame because all other artists pass away, but he remains. Oh, by the way, his name is God, Yahweh, creator, your maker. He's infinitely creative, sir. There is no one greater. And, and I can tell it looks like you're starting to get mad at me, but don't be jealous just because your favorite artist might bend words and my favorite artist bends galaxies. See, in the palm of his hand, he holds all the sand, the author of life when he whispered, let us make man. See, what if I told you that you are God's poetry? You were created because someone else was creative. Yeah. So a track like Greatest Artist of All Time was an incredible opportunity for me to expand my sound, my palette, my opportunities to do different types of music. And so I'm sitting at home and I get a call from some guys in Cleveland. So, you know, I'm still living in Cleveland this time. I'm doing all this work with Lecrae and Andy and all these guys in the basement of my dad's house in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> and I get a call from some video editors in Cleveland. These guys that I've known for a few years now, Purple Films, they called me and said, hey, we just got a call from Nike. We're going to shoot LeBron for his new signature shoe release. Now, LeBron had just come back to Cleveland for his second tenure. They're going out to Akron. They're going to shoot him. He's going to be with some kids at the University of Akron, and he's going to do this reveal of his new shoe. And they were like, hey, we need some tracks because we want to do a video for Nike and we want to put it out. Would you be interested in sending stuff over? I'm like, oh, absolutely. I would love to do that. I was just like, okay, here's the deal. Mind you, this is Thursday. It's like, we need the music by Saturday because when we're doing the shoot. I'm like, oh my gosh. He's like, and so they give me these references of like, hey, it's like cinematic. Think of like a Gatorade commercial or, you know, ESPN. And I'm like, oh, OK. All right. All right. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. So all day Thursday, mental block. I can't think of anything. You know, part of it could be the anxiety of the excitement, but I just was complete writer's block. All day Friday, complete writer's block. So it's Friday, like nine o'clock. And I'm just still sitting down. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to keep running this water. It might be brown, but eventually it's going to run clear. I'm going to keep running this water. And eventually the ideas start flowing. And so I come up with three cool ideas. You know, I like the ideas. I send them over to those guys. I don't hear anything all day Saturday. Now, mind you, I know they're at the shoot. I know they're working, but I don't hear anything. I'm like, tell me if you don't like it. Tell me if it's bad. Like, tell me something. Don't leave me here twisting. All day Sunday, I don't hear anything. So at this point, you know, I'm just like, oh, it was a great opportunity. It didn't play out. So it's such as life. I get a text message Sunday night that said, hey, the music is amazing. We're still editing. Should be live on Monday, pending Nike and LeBron's approval. I'm like, whoa, okay. So you're saying there's a chance, huh? <laughs> and so Monday morning, early Monday morning, probably six in the morning, I get a text message say, hey, music is approved by LeBron and Nike. Congrats. Thank you so much on the work. And it's going to go live. And so it goes live Monday on Nike.com. It goes live on YouTube and on Instagram where my music is the background for this LeBron Nike. I think it was his 13th shoe reveal. And it was probably one of the one of my favorite accomplishments, partly because a, I'm a huge basketball fan. B, I'm a kid from Northeast Ohio, just like LeBron is. And it's Nike. And so for me, that was like, OK, you finally got a foot into this other world. This is a great opportunity and it doesn't stop there though. That's the funny part. So I'm excited. I'm all excited. Two weeks later, I get a call 
I'm sitting in my dad's basement. I get a call from Beaverton, Oregon. So, you know, on your iPhone, it shows up like what city it's from. And I'm like, I don't know anybody from Beaverton. I'm not going to pick this up. So I ignore the call. But then I sit there. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. What the heck is Beaverton, Oregon? <laughs> Wait, listeners, I hope lots of you know what's in Beaverton. Alexander, I'll let you I'll let you give it away. But oh, no, you didn't answer. I did not answer the call. I completely ignored. I'm thinking it's a spam call. So I Google Beaverton, Oregon. First thing that pops up, Nike World Headquarters. So I'm like, oh, let me call this back. So I call the number back. A lady picks up. She's like, hello. I was like, hey, my name's Alex Hitchens. I just got a call from this number. She was like, oh, yes, Mr. Hitchens. One second. We'll put you through to Chad Kersman. So she puts me through. This gentleman named Chad picks up. He's like, hey, Alex. Hey, my name's Chad. I'm the global communication director for Nike Basketball. So I'm like, oh, wow. It's a big deal. In my head, I don't say that out loud, but I'm thinking that. He's like, hey, we love the music you did for LeBron. It was incredible. We've never really worked with composers before. We have a feeling this is going to be Kobe Bryant's final season. And we want to do a really special final signature shoe video for his release. Would you be interested in composing that music for us? <laughs> so, I'm not going to say no. I was like, absolutely. I would love to do it. It would be an honor. And he's like, okay, great. It'll be a little different this time. You'll actually be able to work with the editors. We'll give you the video ahead of time. You'll be able to score it. And yeah, we trust you with this. Just uh, here's creatively where we want to go. Ken gave me the very loose blueprint, but I had a lot of autonomy as far as how to create the music and the sound to do. And for me, that was even bigger than the LeBron deal because to get the call back meant that I was doing something right. It was so affirming and so encouraging to get a call, especially when he said, we don't usually work with composers like that. So they're, they're actually going outside of their typical, you know, creative rhythms because they were so encouraged by the music that I created. They found something special. They found something special and they knew we've got to have more of this. Yeah. And that made me feel special. So that ignited a fire in me. It's like, okay, there's a world in TV film commercial that you could possibly run really fast and hard through. So yeah, that was a big deal. We've got a Grammy, we've got a Dove awards, and now you're making music for videos for LeBron James and now for Kobe Bryant. And I have to ask, can we get the clip of the Kobe music? Can we put that on the show here for our listeners? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The Kobe piece was called Innovation Mastered. So yeah, here's the music that I had the privilege to create for the late, great Kobe Bryant. You know, I don't quit. I'm mean, I keep pushing and pushing and pushing and see if I can figure this damn thing out. That's who I am. And I'll try my best and I'll keep on, keep on going, man. I think Kobe's legacy will obviously be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. You know, his drive, his intensity, his will to be the best that he could. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, I think that very much holds true with Kobe. His athleticism, his commitment to the game, his undying, unrelenting work ethic. But I think more than anything is his will. And there's just an inner fortitude that is just there. And it drives everything that, you know, that that he does. Alexander, this is 
absolutely incredible. I mean, now I get why you introduce yourself as, you know, a kid from Cleveland finding his way in LA. And clearly your music is traveling way beyond LA. I mean, you're doing now sports music. I mean, if you go to Alexander's website, alexanderhitchens.com, you can see some of the stuff he's doing for just everyday sports that you may be seeing on TV. Sounds like you're certainly finding your way in LA, but that's a great segue. I do want to ask you kind of about the business of art. And, you know, we hear all the time about starving artists and I hear things through the grapevine of, Oh, it's a lot harder to earn a living in the music world now that we're on this like pay per listen structure that we've kind of moved to because of Apple and the whole way that they changed the music world coming out of Napster, just getting it for free. Apple turning that same model into a paid model. But I've heard it's a lot harder for artists to sometimes actually make a living now, unless they're one of the like breakout super, super stars. So maybe you can talk to that for our listeners. Let's talk about the business of art and specifically the business of music. How do you as an entrepreneur actually make a living doing your craft? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the landscape has changed so much, but also changes so frequently. You know, you think about the streaming platforms that now exist where people obviously are not buying albums anymore. Well, the streaming platforms, the monetization of it is still not where it should be. You know, as someone who's on the creative side and the writing side, if you saw the, the percentages that we get paid based on per stream, it's less than a penny per stream, you know? So unless you're one of like the Drake or the Taylor Swift's of the world, Justin Bieber's, you're not really making a huge dent in that, right? So take a producer like me, right? Say I get one track on a Justin Bieber album. Well, you know, that's one track on an entire album. Now on that one track, there might be five writers on there, right? So I may be one producer. I may be collaborate with another producer, but then you have the writer who writes the song for Justin. Then you have Justin taking his percentage. So now you have this pie that's all of a sudden being broken up into all these little pieces. And that's just for one song. And you got to hope someone streams that song a bunch. So if it's not even a radio single, you know, you're not making enough to pay rent, you know, just to be quite honest with you. So as a producer, as someone who's on this side of the board, you know, we're not on tour. You know, artists make their money going from city to city, state to state. They're getting paid X amount of dollars per show. Well, I don't see any of that revenue, right? And that revenue for shows, just so I understand it, this is from ticket sales, from merchandise revenue, things of that nature. So even if they're doing your song in that show, you don't participate as a writer. You're not participating in the revenue that's coming from the merchandise sales or from the ticket sales. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a completely separate stream of income for the artist, right? So an artist, you know, if it's, say, Taylor Swift, she has her songs, but then she'll have you know, shirts, so she'll have hats and things that are based on the song that she's selling that maybe we wrote together, but there's not a structure for the producer to get paid for that, right? So as a producer, either I have charged more on the front end, anticipating that, hey, the song may blow up and you may actually try to monetize in all the different ways or whatever, or I just have to get more creative on my end, right? So that's one thing that I've done as a producer. It's like, okay, I still love working with artists. I still love doing the track. I still love having people sing on my tracks and rap on my tracks. But I've got to figure out other streams. And so for me, TV, film, commercial has been other streams for me to lean into. And they've actually proven to be a little more consistent 
you know, than just radio records. Because, you know, if I work on a Lecrae song, Lecrae does one album a year, maybe one album every couple years. If I get two tracks on there, great, that's cool. But that's not sustainable over the course of 365 days, you know, to be able to, to make money and to invest and to buy things and take care of my family. I have to have different things, different opportunities every month, every other month to be able to monetize. And so to find opportunities for my music to live on a TV show, whether it's Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Shark Week, ESPN Sports Center, you know, I have an amazing relationship with the NBA. They use a lot of my music for their social media and their YouTube stuff. Yeah, I've just had to get creative, you know, as a producer. And I encourage other producers to say, hey, man, like you can put music out here that doesn't need vocals because you know, if a newscaster is talking over your track, you know, do it. You know, this is a great opportunity. And so, you know, you hear the phrase all the time, multiple streams, multiple streams. I can't emphasize that enough. I uh, just got to get creative. Like, all right, where else can my music live other than just this one pigeonholed way? And so a question I have about that, Alexander, is when that income comes, is it like a one and done charge when you do something for a certain TV show? Or is it Every time that show airs, there's a piece that's coming back, like a royalty. How does that part work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are royalties to that. And that's the beauty of it. So I like to think of it like stocks, right? The more songs that I put into a library. I work a lot with Universal Music and they have a production library. So what Universal Music will do, they'll buy an album from me. So they'll say, hey, you know, ESPN hit us up and they need a orchestral hip hop album. So I'm like, okay, I'll do 12 tracks of that. So I'll create that on my own. I don't need any rappers. I don't need any singers. It's all in the box. I create that. They buy it from me. They put it onto their platform. And now TV shows like ESPN, NFL Network, Fox, they can all license it out. And they can license it as many times as they want. They can license it all at the same time. But it just gets into the cycle. So for me, I look at the tracks in the library as like stocks. I put them in and I let them accumulate. So every three months, I get a statement from BMI, this broadcast music institution. But their job is to basically track my royalties and my usage. So every three months, I'll get a report and I can pull that report up and I can see all the places that my song has been played. All the networks, everywhere from Univision to TVN to CNN to Discovery. I can see the same song get used, you know, 20 times in a month. You know, that's my mentality. It's like a snowball effect. That's incredible. So it sounds like you really have the opportunity to create a recurring revenue model. The more stuff you have out there, the more you've created, the more it's getting utilized, the more you can kind of build up a recurring revenue stream over time. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. To this day, there are songs that I created four years ago in the library that I'm still seeing residuals on because, you know, I'll be watching TV. Yeah, I call it catching it in the wild. So, you know, I'll be out with friends watching ESPN and I'll hear the song. I was like, man, I created that four years ago and they're still using it to this day, you know, on top of the stuff that I'm putting in there this month, you know? And so, yeah, it is a recurring model. It is a one that the turnaround, like I said, is very quick, you know, so Universal will buy the album from me. For example, I'll work on maybe two albums a month for Universal. So I'm getting the upfront fee, but then I'm also getting the residual fee, you know, the quarterly fee. It's actually allowed me the freedom and the bandwidth to be able to work on projects with rappers and singers that I'm excited about, 
You know, I can walk into a room and not feel like, oh, I have to write a number one record because if I don't, I won't be able to, you know, pay my car and all these things. Like, it's actually liberating. And so I'm trying to spread the good news of this side of the industry. It's like, hey, man, like you don't have to feel that crippling pressure to write a hit record, you know, when there's other ways that you can actually monetize your gift. And actually, in a weird way, that actually makes you be able to write better songs because you feel less anxiety. I tell people all the time, anxiety for artists People was like, oh, you know, I write good songs when I'm depressed or I'm sad. Like, no, it's actually really hard to create art when you're feeling that stress and that anxiety because I've been there, you know. And so any way that you can create bandwidth to be able to create good art, to be able to seek inspiration and do all this thing, they all work together. You know, I'm a big proponent of that. That's incredible. Incredible. Well, thank you for bringing us under the hood in the music world. That helps me understand how that works. And sounds like you really nailed it to say having different revenue streams. So kind of diversifying those revenue streams, ultimately that's what allows you to get to do what you want to do most. And I had this conversation with my son the other day. So young artist, Alexander, you've been so gracious to be so kind to him, but young artist, he does shoes, he does digital art. He just published his first like kid's book. He's trying to find his fitting in the art world. And one of the things he was struggling with was realizing even at this young age of 15, there's a lot of stuff that people are asking him to create that he's not passionate about. He's not excited about it, but it's a paycheck. And so he's having to figure out this balance of, well, I don't really enjoy creating this, whatever it is but it's how I'm earning money versus the projects he gets to do where he's genuinely excited about it. I can see a whole different level of passion and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what I heard you articulate is look for an artist, you got to do some of those projects that you're making what other people need from you, even though you might not be super excited about it, but that's what buys you the freedom to get to the work on the stuff that you're really excited about. Is that a fair way to understand it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all about leverage, you know? So there are countless projects I could go through that I've worked on that I was not excited about, but it's something that allowed me to get some revenue to be able to invest into something else I want to do. For example, I'm living in Cleveland. I'm working at a school for autism. I work at the school for autism called it's Belfair JCB. I did that for six years. It wasn't my favorite thing. There was a lot of beauty in it. The kids were amazing. The kids were absolutely my favorite part of it. But it's a job. I wake up every day. I go in. I teach. But then I would get off work and I would go into the studio until two in the morning. And I'm beat. But I knew that, hey, I need to work this job to get some income, to be able to pour into my craft, to be able to invest into equipment, be able to invest into microphones. And so I was doing something that I didn't love in order to do more of what I did love. And sometimes there's seasons like that where you got to lean into that and be like, hey, you know what? I'm playing the big game. You know, we live in a culture where we want to always pick the fruit the same day that we plant the seed. But guess what? That's not how nature works. You got to plant the seed and trust that in due time, you'll reap that harvest that you're supposed to reap. So. That's right. That's right. And Alexander, that's a perfect segue into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first question is the question that everybody wants to know. And what that really means, it's the question I want to know. And I don't know how you read my mind, 
But I wanted to ask you about the intersection of music and autism. And here's why. So some of our listeners will know, you know, I have a daughter who's autistic. She's 19 years old. And there are certain songs, if we play them, I could go play one right now in my living room and it will drop her to tears because her brain interacts with that music and that same song, I could play it for her tomorrow. It will drop her to tears. The next day, it will bring her to tears. There are certain certain ways music is arranged that impact her brain in such a way it brings her to immediate tears. So I want to ask about that. And then also, one of the things that was just starting to come about as we were realizing she had autism was this concept that music may have this healing effect on the brain, or at least a calming effect. And I don't know why, and this is what I want to ask you about, but they encouraged us to find music that was set at 40 beats per minute, which it turns out for somebody who's not very musical, it's pretty difficult to find music that's 40 beats per minute. We finally found some Bach that was at 40 beats per minute. But with this idea of that could really calm the brain so that maybe instead of perseverating on a specific stuffed animal that she wants that she doesn't have, that her brain could calm down and she could go back to kind of functioning and thinking about other things. So I just want to ask you about that. What's been your interaction with the way that music can maybe have an impact on autism? And what are you seeing, hearing, learning that might inform others? Absolutely. Music is so powerful. I think about how there are certain songs that I maybe haven't heard for 10 years that if they come on, I know every single word to it. So there's some mystery about the way that the music interacts with our brain. It hits a sweet spot and it resonates and it sits there. It could be a reminder of a time that was calm for us. It could be a reminder of a time that was peaceful or joy. It could be a reminder of a time that, you know, there was heartbreak, you know, that has that power. And when you talk about tempo, tempo is unbelievably important because it's basically the pace of the song, right? So it's like whether it's 40 beats per minute, 60 or 80. And so certain tempos actually interact with the brain waves, interacts with your heart rate. You know, so I play golf. There are certain tempos that my coach tells me to put my headphones in when I'm putting to make sure that my tempo is good on my swing, you know, because it's like if you listen to it over time, when you get out there and play, that tempo will be almost like embedded in your DNA into your psyche where you're feeling it. And so as a creative, it reminds me of the power that we wield, for lack of a better term, or the responsibility that we have. Right. We're creating music that shapes the way people view the world, view themselves, even view their circumstances. And so, you know, when I worked at a school for autism, I had a kid every single day, he wanted to listen to My Chemical Romance Black Parade every single day. (laughs) There's another kid, Pearl Jam Alive. And these kids weren't even alive when these songs came out. Pearl Jam Alive, every single day, she wanted to hear it because it got her to a place of calm that allowed her to be able to do motor skills activities or different things. And so, yeah, it's incredible you know, the kind of instrument that music is just in being able to navigate everyday life. And we experience it, even if we're not on the spectrum per se, you know, there's certain songs that we listen to, whether it's in the morning, whether it's worship music, if it's music when we're driving, just to like calm ourselves after work, 
you know, I think we find those records, find those playlists, find those things to get you to your sweet spot. You know, it's a powerful tool for sure. That's incredible. And that's a great segue into the real question that everybody wants to know. And I'm sure some of our listeners are just hearing your story saying, oh, I want to follow this guy. I want to see what he's up to next. I love that he's doing these big things. I want to connect with more of his music. Or maybe they're a budding artist that is just trying to get their feet wet and they just need encouragement. What is the best way for them to engage with you and your content so that they can kind of continue to be inspired by you and see a great shining example of a guy who has mastered his craft and is getting out there and doing incredible things for the world? Okay. That means a lot. Thank you. My website, I post a lot of what I do on there so people can kind of get a glimpse into the both worlds that I've existed in, both the hip hop, Christian hip hop world, but also the TV film commercial world. So www.alexanderhitchens.com is my website. On there, you can find not only the music, the reels, but also my social media handles. There's even a, a section where you can send me an email. I'd love to engage and answer questions. But for young, young creatives, and not just even producers, I think of artists, I think of musicians, singers, anybody, you know, any career path, be a giver. You know, I moved to L.A. six and a half years ago, and one of the biggest pieces of advice that I got when I first moved there was from my worship pastor at the church I'm at now. He said, look, everyone comes to L.A. to take, but if all we do, and this is anywhere, this could be L.A., it could be Nashville, it could be Atlanta. If all we do is take, there's going to be nothing left, right? We need people who are willing to give and to plant, and if you plant and you give, you'll always find yourself in the right room because you'll be viewed as someone who is a space maker. You'll be viewed as someone who's safe. It's not transactional. We need more people that are, are space makers, that are givers, that are leave the industry better than you found it. You know, I think God has a way to really honor that in all of our lives. And so, yeah, be some givers. That's incredible. Alexander, thank you so much for being here. And listeners, thank you as well. I say this every time now, but we are so thankful. You have made this show way bigger and better than I ever imagined. And we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you for who you are as well. So Alexander, thanks so much for being with us here today. Thank you for letting us use your clips as well. That's new for us. I'm so excited about it. And listeners, Thank you. We'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.